Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. All right, so now you should be seeing uh, my first slide. That looks good, Richard. Yes, all right. Um, and let me move the chat window out of the way so I can... Uh, all right, so uh, what you're seeing here is the cover of, of my biography of Aleister Crowley, Perdurabo, The Life of Aleister Crowley. Um, this is the revised and expanded edition of a book that was originally published in 2002. And actually, it turns out this edition was published in 2010, which makes this year the 10-year anniversary of uh, this um, substantially um, you know, expanded edition of the book. And uh, again, this is not to be confused with the earlier edition. Huh, okay, now my advance button does not seem to be working. Although, well, let's try this. There we go. Not to be confused with the original edition, which we don't talk about anymore. Um, just joking. But anyway, as, as you might have gathered, um, I have written, contributed to various books, journals, documentaries, and uh, a few others kind of shown here. And the books I'm probably best known for um, include Perdurabo, which picture here in the middle, um, Forgotten Templars, which Chris had mentioned, um, is my history of the origins of Ordo Templi Orientis up to and including you know, the beginning of Crowley's involvement. And then on the right here, we see Panic in Detroit, which is a, an expanded edition of, of a book I put out a few years ago. And this was a, just put out in this new edition um, last summer. And it's about twice as long as the first edition and is readily available, whereas the original was kind of a small press limited uh, edition. Finally, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that uh, late this year or early next, uh, will the, the printing gods uh, being with us, we'll see the release of a um, edited and annotated edition of Aleister Crowley's book, The Sword of Song, which 
should be uh, pretty exciting. I'm excited about it at least that it will feature for the first time Crowley's book sort of song separately published for the first time since 1904. And I've gone through and heavily annotated all the obscure references, the things that he talks about that refer to uh, current events that are no longer current and we may have forgotten in the ensuing 116 years what he was going on about. And I think that will help make the book a lot more intelligible. And in addition, I've gone back through Crowley's uh, manuscripts and typescripts of the book and spent a lot of time talking about changes that were made, lines that were deleted, verses that were deleted and changed and so on. So we'll really give an unprecedented look into Crowley's process in creating this remarkable book. Well, all that being said, let us go on to who was Aleister Crowley. And again, the idea of these various pictures we see here is to drive home the fact, the, the, the idea that I presented earlier is that Crowley is someone to, for whom there are many, many sides. And just a few of these are illustrated here. And what I'd like to do to drive this point home <clears throat> is to share with you a couple of um, quotes. <clears throat> One of these is from Henry Hall, who wrote an article on Aleister Crowley, introducing him to American readers when Crowley arrived um, on Halloween, basically, in 1915. And he spent the next five years living in the United States, traveling around. And so here's how Harry, Henry Hall introduced Crowley to New Yorkers and to the United States. One man to whom I spoke of him lauded Crowley as a poet of rare delicacy, the author of Hail Mary, a garland of verses in honor of the mother of God. Another alluded to him as an unsparing critic of American literature. Another knew him as the holder of some world's records for mountain climbing. Still another warned me against him as a thoroughly bad man, a Satanist or devil worshiper steeped in black magic, the high priest of Beelzebub. An actor knew of him only as a theatrical producer and as the designer of extraordinary stage costumes. A publisher told me that Crowley was an essayist and philosopher whose books, nearly all privately issued, were masterpieces of modern printing. By others, he was variously pictured to me as a big game hunter, as a gambler, as an editor, as an explorer. Some said that he was a man of real attainments, other that he was a faker. All agreed that he was extraordinary. I love that quote, because I think that really kind of gets to the meat of it, whether you uh, find Crowley an appealing or an appalling figure, his life is certainly remarkable. And this brings me to a second quote from a letter from Aleister Crowley to Jack Parsons um, many years later, 1943. And uh, I think this kind of puts Crowley into some perspective and also from the perspective of his own perception of, of himself. And here we go. I wish therefore that you would realize that my universe is very much larger than yours. Some time ago, I thought of writing a book on internationally famous people with whom I had been intimate. The number ran to over 80. 
Am I wrong to suppose that you never met such people? Take another point. Have you visited the monuments of antiquity? Have you seen the majority of the great paintings and sculptures? Have you discussed all sorts of intimate matters with natives of every civilized quarter of the globe? Perhaps more than any of the above in importance, have you made your way alone in parts of the earth never before trodden by human foot, perhaps in hostile and nearly always inhospitable country? The point that I am trying to get you to realize is that any statement or action of mine is enormously modified by my having had these experiences. And while I think that quote there uh, shows Crowley a bit of going, engaging in a bit of tooting his own horn, I think it also speaks to the fact that Crowley has had life experiences that very few of us can claim and, and that this kind of informs um, you know, his, his, his life and his, his view and how, how he's gone about living his life. So with that said, um, I'd like to offer just a, a kind of a quick um, capsule of um, Crowley's life here. So to begin with, he was born to a family that was rich and religious. And I think these two things define very much of Crowley's character and life. Um, his father was a lay preacher, and he was he was sent to uh, private religious schools or taught by tutors who were parts of his parents' faith or at least close enough. Um, Crowley actually admired his father uh, very much and was devastated when he died when Crowley was only 12 years old. Um, his mother and to an extent his uncle Tom Bond Bishop tried to kind of step in and kind of carry on Crowley's work or to represent that religious figure in young Crowley's life. And he just wouldn't accept that. It was kind of like treading on his father's you know, sacred memory. And instead he, he rebelled and resisted very strenuously, both against his mom and his uncle. Um, he also became problematic at school. Uh, an abusive punishment there left him with albuminuria and a very poor prognosis. So he was pulled from school and he was sent on a rest cure with tutors and whatnot. And this gave him the opportunity when he was away from you know, the watchful eye of, of his family to rebel against his tutors and later his Cambridge professors. And uh, he also discovered all those things that had been forbidden to him by this, the strict fundamentalist upbringing of his family. And these forbidden things, including things like drinking, smoking, sex, books, and alternative spiritual beliefs. And this ultimately led him to magic. Um, also, part of Crowley's recovery involved the physical sport of rock climbing. And this actually led him to setting various records in terms of climbing rocks, chalk cliffs, and mountains. And it's on one of these mountaineering exhibits, uh, expeditions rather, in the Swiss Alps that he was having a discussion in a beer hall that he actually met uh, a Golden Dawn member, Julian Baker, who then introduced Crowley to the Golden Dawn. Um, he kind of entered the Golden Dawn at a time when internal politics were already tearing the group apart. And within two years, the London Lodge he had joined had just imploded and gone dark. And, you know, Crowley, you know, Crowley 
spends a lot of time poo-pooing his golden his golden dawn experience you know in his confessions you hear him say things like oh you know they swore me to secrecy and then they gave me to memorize the hebrew alphabet you know which he thought was overly simplistic but despite that sort of um you know negging of the golden dawn basically um the golden dawn system actually was a very brilliant synthesis um of then disparate esoteric traditions, which included things like the Kabbalah, grimoires, Enochian magic, Eastern mysticism, Greek theurgy, and so on. And this really was the foundation that everything that Crowley did built on. Um, I think it's fair to say that you cannot understand Crowley without understanding the Golden Dawn, because um, that really is at the foundation of everything. Um, however, the collapse of the Golden Dawn left Crowley kind of at loose ends, and so he pursued other things, which included the study of Buddhism and Hinduism, and he actually did this by traveling and living in, in you know, the, the, on the Indian continent um, and studying with his Golden Dawn mentor, Alan Bennett, who had since become a Buddhist monk. Um, he participated in record-setting climbs of the, of the second and third highest mountains in the world. Uh, K2 and Kanchenjunga. The only reason he did not attempt um, Mount Everest, which was the tallest mountain in the world, was that at the time that mountain was not ac accessible um, to Europeans. So he had to settle for number two and three instead. Um, he also bought a house and got married. And it's that marriage that led to his honeymoon, which part included uh, Cairo, and it is in Cairo that he had the experience of receiving the the text, the Book of the Law, of which you've heard much um, so far today. And it is this Book of the Law, this automatic writing, this spirit transmission, you know, whatever you want to call it, is this text that ultimately for was the holy book that lies at the foundation of Alistair Crowley's uh, philosophy of Thelema, whose core principle can be expressed in the statement, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, after that, you know, it was, it was off to the races. You know, Crowley was a, at first a little bit of a reluctant prophet, but he ultimately accepted this role that had been foisted upon him by Iwas, and he did it with great aplomb. So he started his uh, Golden Dawn styled secret society, kind of filling the vacuum or you know, the void left by the Golden Dawn. And this was the AA. He began publishing the Equinox as its official organ. And in the year, months and years and decades that followed, you know, he discovered the idea of sex magic and thereby became the UK Grandmaster General of OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis, and eventually succeeded to become outer head of that order. He produced rituals and plays for a paying public. Uh, he, much like his father, the lay preacher before him, he devoted his life to promulgating the message of the Book of the Law through his writings and other activities. And <clears throat> is basically this activity, the spreading of his gospel of self-empowerment, self-determination, and personal freedom um, through which he managed to shock the state Victorian and Edwardian sensibilities of his time while befriending the intellectual elite. So if you look at a lot of his friends, um, they also tended to be people who were 
you know, also sticking their finger in the eye of, you know, the, the, of convention. And through this sort of um, activity and through the friends that he surrounded himself with, Alistair Crowley managed to stay incisive and relevant to his last days. And in fact, I would say that his later writings, um, things like Eight Lectures on Yoga, the book and the Book of Thoth um, in particular, um, are among some of his best works. And with that, <clears throat> what I will do is advance to this slide, which I think of as kind of a uh, nativity calendar of the different parts of um, Crowley's life. And as I'd said at the beginning, um, some of these I'd actually broken out and given you know, long lectures on just this one piece. And we're, we can delve into any of these things that you would like, I think, in honor of um, <clears throat> Soma Institute inviting me here, I would like to nominate myself the Crowley as drug addict or perhaps a drug fiend is a better term to use. And because um, I, I know a lot of people who are here through, uh, you know, through the connections to, to Chris and through the Soma Institute will be find this very interesting. And Chris, in fact, did a great job covering a lot of this material. So I don't want to repeat a lot of what he said so much as um, go into some other um, subject matter. And in fact, three points I think I want to make in this short segment are that to acknowledge that Crowley was an entheogenic pioneer, that um, I would like to say a little bit about his theories about use, abuse, and addiction. And there were some questions that came up about that, some conversation at the beginning of today's session. And finally, I want to dispel this whole, I know that this myth of Crowley as the lifelong drug addict, um, which certainly is not true. So, um, <clears throat> there's actually a very funny uh, story to this slide, which is where I want to talk about Crowley as an entheogenic pioneer. And uh, the story here from this slide, if you'll indulge me, <clears throat> is that when I was in my senior year of high school, the our English class was actually a class in British literature, English literature. And each of us were assigned to pick a, 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 an English or a, you know, a British writer, and we would spend the, the year um, reading and reviewing and writing essays about our chosen British author. And so naturally, I chose Aleister Crowley as the person I wanted to you know, uh, spend my time with that, that year. And so I wrote you know, reviews of you know, the, the typical stuff, you know, the Diary of a Drug Fiend, Moonchild, and then kind of got into some of his uh, you know, nonfiction works. And then one day, my English teacher um, took me aside and handed me the article that you see on the screen here. And you know, she said to me, is this the guy that you are, you're, you're, you're writing about? And then she said, you know, I was, I was in my dentist's office the other day and I found this magazine there and I was reading and I came across this article 
And I, I just had, you know, I had to tear out the article and bring it to you because, you know, I'm concerned that this is the guy that you were talking about. And I looked at this article and I said, this is, this is sensationalistic bullshit. No, this is not what he is about at all. And my teacher kind of, oh, okay, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm much relieved. And I think it says something about how naive I was, even, you know, as a senior in high school, that was probably a couple of years after I graduated that I pulled out this article and looked at it again and said, wait a minute, this is an article from the high times and my English teacher did not find this at her dentist's office. <laughs> um, but be that as it may, um, the, 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 the appearance of this article in high times basically does testify to the fact that Crowley was indeed um, an entheogenic pioneer. Um, here we see a picture of Alan Bennett, who was Crowley's Golden Dawn mentor. He suffered from asthma and found relief from his symptoms through rotating various drugs um, that served as analgesics. And it's worth mentioning at this time that this is, you know, 1898 to 1900, all this stuff was legal. You could go down to your local chemist shop and buy, you know, drugs that you wanted. You know, Sigmund Freud, as an example, was someone who, who loved cocaine and he, you know, he's, he has letters talking about how he, he loves the fact that cocaine makes his mistress's cheeks look very flush and sexy. Um, but it was Alan Bennett's use of these drugs to alleviate his symptoms that he also discovered that there is a mystical use for these substances. Um, and Crowley, through, you know, through his own explorations, had also drunk absinthe and pernod, and he would later make cocktails like the Eagle Tail Maya and the Kublai Khan, which included ingredients like laudanum and ether. Um, you know, he, while mountain climbing in Mexico, he was introduced to peyote and he, and then this kind of became his, his favorite drug, you know, Anhelonium Luini, and he concurrently claims to have introduced its use to Europe. That may not be factually true, but Crowley nevertheless took credit for this, and he believed it himself. And um, <clears throat> let me see, I'm going to read you just a, just a couple of short excerpts from Perturabo, if you'll indulge me, just two paragraphs here. Although a poet and mountaineer, Crowley was above all a magician. He devoted himself to the study and practice of rituals designed to achieve non-ordinary states of consciousness and ultimately enlightenment. In his quest, all methods, including drugs, were fair game. His early years studying what he called magic included out-of-body travel and other occult experiments under the influence of various drugs. Performances of his ritual drama, The Rites of Eleusis, likewise included a reputedly psychoactive libation. Um, we furthermore, and this is kind of, I'm transitioning to the second thing I want to quote from. Um, it was during a magical working with um, Mary Desti uh, or Mary Dest or Marie Dest, Dest Sturgis, uh, Sora Varakam, um, or some of her other names she might be known by, um, where uh, again, the, the idea open, presented itself to Crowley. So, November 21st, 1911. 
Drifting after a long, intense evening of sex and alcohol, Mary Dusty muttered that a wizard named Abeldees had just appeared to her in a vision with a message. Her lover, Alistair Crowley, a bit of a wizard himself, realized he was onto something. Ceremonial magicians traditionally used highly scripted rituals to conjure and converse with angels, demons, and other unearthly denizens. But altered states of consciousness produced by pleasure and purple and drunkenness of the innermost sense were far more potent. So, <clears throat> oh, there's William saying farewell from Berlin. Farewell, William, thank you for joining us. Um, back to the presentation. So um, another one of Crowley's notable connections was with the laboratories of Park Davis Company in Detroit, Michigan. And when Crowley arrived in the United States, again, in October of 1915 and Halloween, one of his early trips that year was to the Park Davis plant. And he talked to them about his interest in Anhelonium Lewini, the, the psychoactive cactus and Park Davis took an interest in this and some of her chemists obligingly made him a preparation that he found much more effective than those he had used before. And Crowley carried out a series of experiments with this substance that he recorded in a diary called the cactus. Unfortunately, this diary does not survive. Um, it'd be great to know, you know <laughs> what he did and what he saw. Um, but uh, we can only wonder. Um, here we see a cover from the magazine, The International, which Alistair Crowley was editor of and contributed a great deal to. And this cover uh, illustrates Crowley's essay on cocaine, which he contributed to this issue. The artist of this cover, in fact, incidentally, is Leon Engers Kennedy, who is the fellow who painted the portrait of Crowley in his ochre robes in a meditative pose that served as the as as a as a color plate in the 1919 issue of the Equinox, sometimes called the Blue Equinox? Um, Crowley also uh, brought his buddy in to illustrate some of these magazine covers as well. Um, so on this, basically the point of this is to show that Crowley did write a number of essays about his experiments uh, with, with various drugs. These include cocaine. And as we see here, we also have hashish, uh, which, which Crowley wrote about in the Equinox, absinthe, um, something that he, he has an essay on in, also in the International. And we also encounter the the short story, the drug, and other stories. So this is something that Crowley definitely was, was made part of his exploration and practice for about 20 years of his life. So you figure about starting from his golden dawn years up through the um, Abbey of Thalema, Chafalu period. Now then, on my next slide here, I've got some suggestions for further reading. Um, and this includes uh, Chris Bennett's Liber 420, an encyclopedic work uh, that touches on all manner of history of uh, cannabis use specifically and other magical herbs. Um, as, as Chris said at the beginning of the day, uh, he didn't get to spend as much time on 19th and 20th century occultism. So we can look forward to his follow-up volume focusing on that. Um, there's a paper um, by Partridge called Alistair Crowley on Drugs, 
uh, which you can find online. And uh, again, Patrick Everett's uh, master's thesis, The Cactus and the Beast, uh, focuses on the idea of, of the psychedelics that Crowley talks about. Um, an interesting thing about Patrick Everett's thesis is that um, he looks at some of Crowley's visionary works like The Vision and the Voice, which while Crowley's diaries don't specifically mention that he was partaking um, of these substances while he was doing The Vision and the Voice, uh, Everett argues that the sorts of vision and uh, synesthesia sorts of effects described in The Vision and the Voice are consistent with the use of Anilonium Luini. Um, and, and this also took point took place around the time that Crowley was known to be experimenting with it. And it was, you know, in the year after Revision of the Voice that Crowley was kind of dosing people in the audience of the rights of Eleusis with it. So, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting um, um, thesis and, and worth checking out. And finally, last on this list, I, I just thought I'd stick this in here is that uh, Back in uh, 1999, after we had finished kind of co-editing um, an issue of the Oriflam called, but you know, a collection of essays by Crowley released as um, Revival of Magic and Other Essays, we had actually put together a book called Crowley on Drugs, kind of as a pun on, you know, um, you know, Crowley on this and Crowley on that, um, you know, for, for other titles. And um, Unfortunately, that book, um, you know, the, the timing of it was actually very convenient because at that time I was working as, as, a, as a researcher at the Addiction Research Institute, which was part of, uh, you know, an institute in Wayne State University's School of Medicine. And so it was, you know, again, just this coincidental timing, but that book has been kind of shelved. I still kind of hope that one of these days, um, the collection of, again, a lot of these aforementioned essays, um, extracts from other works, diaries, and other unpublished material will see the light of day. Um, so fingers crossed on that. And again, I think I, I, I will leave this piece of it here just because uh, Chris already, again, spent a lot of time on this um, earlier. And I'd like to move on to the other two points that I wanted to make in this piece of the presentation. And one of these is to talk about Crowley's theories about drug use, abuse, and addiction. Um, <clears throat> here we see two essays that Crowley published in the English Review, one on the great drug delusion and the other on the drug panic. Uh, both of these are by Crowley, but he had to publish them under pseudonyms at this time, because Crowley's name was kind of anathema at this point. This was, again, during the Chafaloo period, where the tabloids were calling Crowley the wickedest man in the world and were talking about the drug and sex orgies that he was having at his commune and all this kind of stuff. Um, so his, his friend, um, um, Austin Harrison, who was the editor of the English Review, um, could only accept and publish things by Crowley under pseudonyms. And there are about five pieces on all that they published at this time. But these two pieces talk about um, Crowley's theories of addiction, as well as um, we see Crowley talking about this boop, in The Diary of a Drug Fiend, the novel that he basically cranked out in 30 days uh, in order to kind of get a payday from the publisher. 
And let me show you. This is the cover of the UK edition, which I think is marvelous. I love it. Um, I'd love to see the book re-released with that cover one of these days. And this is the less interesting US edition of the book. Um, but um, two of the two of the main theories that Crowley had was that, um, and, and again, basically Diary of a Drug Fiend was kind of a commercial in a way, or an infomercial for the Abbey of Thalema. And the idea, the, the, the plot of Diary of a Drug Fiend is someone with a drug problem who winds up coming to the Abbey of Thalema and through exposure to Thalema and Crowley's magic and so on, um, is cured. And so the book is kind of pushing the Abbey of Thalema as a place where people could go for kind of a rest cure. And um, so it's worth saying a little bit of, about what how Crowley looked at this. And this kind of ties into the core of the concept of do what the world should be the whole of the law. In Crowley's mind, one should focus and devote oneself to fulfilling one's will, um, whatever that may be. And everything you do ultimately should be in service to accomplishing your will. And in his mind, drug addiction and abuse happens when you are taking drugs not in service or not to advance your will. That's when you kind of go off the rails and open the door to the potential of drug addiction. Um, so when we look at Crowley's history uh, and, and use of drugs, it, it always is in, in conjunction with his experiments in magic and spiritual advancement. And it's never in what we would consider, you know, a, a recreational use. Um, you know, although, although with alcohol, Crowley was known to be a social drinker, but uh, these other these other substances, he was he was always analyzing, you know, the his the effects and writing in his diaries about what was happening. You know, again, as I mentioned earlier, he had this whole diary of his experiments with Anhelonium Luini. So it was the idea here was that I'm sorry. Right, let's go. I'm leaving a really cool talk to come with you. Ah, okay. But someone else is leaving a cool talk. Thank you. I, I'm glad you're you're enjoying it, and sorry that you're leaving. Um, but now, where was I? Um, well, anyway, um, the idea was that if you are using these substances as an adjunct to achieve these altered states of consciousness and magical work and to realize your will, that inherently protects you from addiction. Um, I'm not saying that that's the, the case, but this was Crowley's um, theory of, of addiction and how Thalema works in conjunction with it. Um, another thing that he did was that, um, he had this idea that at the, at the Abbey of Thalema, he had drugs readily available. So if you wanted cocaine, you could just go and find a drawer of it and then snort to your heart's content. Um, that exaggeration, but I think the point being is that um, Crowley believed that by having this stuff available, um, that, that some of the appeal of something that's kind of naughty or frowned upon socially would kind of dissipate. 
And Crowley actually had a very similar idea with the paintings in the Chamber of Nightmares at the Abbey of Thelema. And if you're not familiar with that, basically what Crowley did is he took a page from Gauguin and he painted the, the this chamber in the Abbey of Thelema with all these very lewd um, and provocative images, a couple of which um, you see here. The, the one in the center or the bigger, you know, the, the one on the left, I should say, which says cocaine, is, uh, is referencing a line from his poem, Lea Sublime, which, which runs, um, stab your demoniac, smile to my brain, soak me in cognac, cunt and cocaine. Um, and so is this sort of the idea that this sort of transgressive and just constant presence of this sort of imagery would kind of deprogram you basically from being titillated by sex. And he had the same kind of attitude with, with, with drugs. Um, you know, I, I have a little bit of anecdotal sort of evidence of that, I suppose, because as when I was a kid, I had a I had an older sister, she's about 18 years older than me, and she had married a police officer. And I remember him kind of dropping off like these glossy pamphlets, you know, at that time they used to do this, just kind of talking about drugs and drug addiction and all this sort of stuff. I just thought it was fascinating. And I used to like make like little dioramas based on this. I remember like finding an old shoe box and getting like a rubber hose and a spoon and some cotton and a lighter and saying, this is what a heroin addict's, you know, kit would look like, you know? And I can just imagine my mom finding this box under my bed going, ah! <laughs> but um, I don't know, I guess, I guess for me as a child though, just being exposed to that and just being able to explore not, not literally taking the drugs as a child, but just you know reading about them and educating myself about them. I wasn't quite as obsessed with it as some of my peers were when they discovered drugs, you know, in their teens. So you know, again, maybe Crowley was onto something there. Um, Crowley does have a diary that he tried to demonstrate his principle of will over addiction. And this is called Libertsaba Valnaiki, or sometimes called the Fountain of Hyacinth. And basically what happened at this point, and we'll kind of, I'll explain how this happened uh, in, the, in, in the third part here, but um, Crowley found himself addicted to heroin during his time at the Abbey of Thelema. And he was also pretty, pretty hooked on cocaine at this point as well for unrelated reasons. But um, he decided he was going to put his money where his mouth is and use these principles that he, he wrote about in these, you know, in the preceding books that I mentioned um, by trying to exert basically his willpower and, and essentially to go cold turkey or at least to wean himself off in a very systematic sort of way. And you know, the fact that Crowley released this as a liber as part of his occult works suggests that he he believes that this was, that he proved this point. But my reading of this is really very different. Um, I think that, yeah, he was able to kind of moderate, maybe tamp down his use, but at the same time you read some of his diary entries that are part of this. And it really is just sort of like the classic added sort of desperation and rationalization. And um, 
you know, I just, I'd like to read just two examples just to kind of show what I mean by that. So uh, on one day at 427, he writes, I want to be able to get into some positive state of mind, no odds on what subject, and I can't. Only cocaine would help me and I won't take it. Then 459, so like half an hour later, his diary says, medium dose. <laughs> so, you know, he, he gave right into that impulse, you know, well, he held out for half an hour, but still. Um, and we see a similar uh, entry on another day. Um, medium dose heroin. This was a real indulgence in the worst sense of the word. It has occurred to me very frequently that I have taken a dose for reasons at present utterly unfathomable. So this dose was taken partly to prove to myself that I was not alarmed by the reflection set down above. <laughs> um, and I finally, I guess I have a third quote here. I'm on another entry, medium dose, excuse, a perverted sense of duty, the clock had struck seven. Um, so I don't know, my reading of Liberty Saba is not that he succeeded, um, but in fact that, um, I don't know, I think it just kind of demonstrated the, the extent to which he was sort of desperately hooked on, on drugs at this particular juncture. And I think that really segues nicely into the last point they wanted to make, um, which is just, you know, dispelling this uh, myth of Crowley being the lifelong heroin addict. Um, and I, and I, I think the, the short version of this is that Crowley was using heroin at two points in his life, <clears throat> and both times they were for medical reasons. Um, so the way this starts is that Crowley's physician for over 10 years, a fellow by the name of Harold Batty Shaw, had prescribed heroin to Crowley as an analgesic for asthma. Um, so kind of ironically, Crowley was suffering from the same condition that Alan Bennett had, you know, uh, you know, 20 years earlier. Um, at the time the Crowley was prescribed this, he was 44 years old. Okay, so bear that in mind. He, this, this is Crowley's introduction to heroin. It's for it's medically prescribed. He's 44. And what winds up happening is that heroin becomes illegal in the UK two years later when, with the passage of the Dangerous Drug Act um, in, in Britain. And a similar law was passed in the US as well. So what, so what this means is that Crowley was prescribed this medicine and all of a sudden told, aha, you can't have this anymore. Well, what winds up happening is that Crowley is now living in Chafaloo and he's forced to buy his, you know, his doses from the local dealer there. Um, that continues for just a short time, however, because it's in September 1924. So this is just under five years after he was first prescribed heroin. So Crowley's, you know, 48 at this time. Um, he's in desperate financial straits. And he and several of his students, Leah Hersig, Norman Mudd, and Adam Gray Murray, are all like reduced to sharing like one room in this sleazy little hotel in France. And there's a diary entry from this, this period, September 1924, where Crowley writes, my legs assumed independent control of the situation. I had a very amusing time watching them try to kick the bedstand to pieces. You know, which again is the, you know, that, that classic kicking the habit, the, the sort of involuntary muscle spasms one has when going cold turkey um, from an addictive substance like heroin. So um, it, it was not 
at the end of the day, it winds up being not Crowley's willpower, but the lack of money <laughs> that uh, ultimately caused him to get off of that habit. And it's really kind of at that point that we really don't see Crowley referring to drug use in his diaries after that period. His, it seems his period of experimentation had largely subsided. And as far as his asthma went, um, other drugs and other apparatuses became available for treatment and, and for managing, management of the symptoms. However, Crowley did, for a second period in his life, wind up back on heroin. And this was in the summer of 1940. So again, fast forward another 15 years. So Crowley is age 64 at this time. And um, his asthma finally has gotten so bad it had progressed that none of the other treatments were helping any longer. However, by then um, in the UK, which is where Crowley was spending out the rest of his life, heroin was once again legal medicinally and was dispensed in very controlled doses uh, you know, sent to him through the mail. And his doctor um, at that time put him on the medicine. So his uh, July 19th, 1940 diary notes his very first dose in 15 years saying, I'm quite dopey, exclamation mark. So um, contrary to this, this myth that Crowley was a, like this lifelong heroin addict, you know, he was really on this drug from the from age 44 to 49 again originally put on it for medical reasons um but then found himself hooked kind of like the opiate crisis here in the, in the united states and then once again um starting at age 64 up until the time he died um but this again in very medically controlled doses and contrary to some of the uh, things that were sensational things written that Crowley at the end of his life was taking enough heroin to kill a room full of people, um, that was not the case. So uh, I hope that dispels some of those um, misunderstandings. And again, just shed some light on um, Crowley's encounter with with drugs. So now we're at this point, we're at, uh, I see quarter two. So we can do a couple things here. We can pick some of these other things from the nativity scene and explore other aspects of Crowley's life. Um, or we can open this up to just general Q&A for 15 minutes. Um, so I think, what, what do y'all feel like? Let's go for sex fiend. Sex fiend. That's Chris. Yeah, that's Chris. Is, that, is that you, Chris? That's me. Oh, of Sex course. and drugs. <laughs> so what about Gerald Gardner? Okay, well, let's see if we can we can try that one next if we've still got time. So let's let's try this one. Um, <clears throat> so. Crowley as the sex fiend, um, and basically the idea here is just talking about Crowley as um, someone who, who incorporates sex into magic, which was um, in some ways kind of uh, revolutionary, but at the same time, not all that revolutionary, because if you look around, he was certainly not the only person doing this, um, but Crowley somehow became notorious for this, uh, perhaps because he was more public about it, and uh, maybe it was just timing, but, um, what we, what we find is that Crowley, as he 
sort of matured as a magician and, and as an experimenter, he began to deviate from kind of this, the golden dawn sort of ceremonial style, style of magic, the idea that you've got a ritual, the ritual is for a specific thing, you do the ritual and you're done and out. And he starts doing these magical workings, which are these prolonged, you know, weeks or months long sorts of experiments where he is repeating things and trying things over and over again and to see what happens. Um, so cases of you know, examples of this are things like the vision and the voice where he is obtaining visions for the 30 Enochian ethers. We see things like the Paris working where he is trying to invoke either Mercury or Jupiter on repeated occasions under the idea, under the theory that just there are you know, multiple sides to these gods. You know, Hermes is a god of magic, a god of communication. There's this phallic aspect to Mercury. He's also very mischievous as a child and, and, and so on. And so that if you were to repeatedly you know, invoke this god, different aspects of that god would come out. Um, the Abaldis and Amalantra workings are again, examples of these prolonged experiments where he would kind of repeatedly indulge in this sort of combination of ritual and sex and mind-altering substances um, to put, you know, the his partner, um, his seer into an altered state of consciousness where they could communicate with these astral or you know, transhuman entities, and Corolla could carry on these conversations and interviews and interrogations. And it's through these experiments that Crowley came to realize that sex could be a very useful and powerful part of ritual magic um, when incorporated into that kind of work. I'm clicking next and nothing has happened. Okay, so this is just the 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 headings here of the of the workings or examples that I just mentioned to you. Um, and what winds up happening is when Crowley publishes um, his book of lies in uh, 1912, 1913, thereabouts, um, Crowley gets a knock on his door, and this is from. Theodore Royce, the head of the OTO, who accuses Crowley of openly publishing the secrets of the OTOs, the most secrets of the OTO, and saying that I must swear you to secrecy, you know, um, so that you stop doing this. But unfortunately, if I swear you to secrecy, that means you are now a member. And hey, how would you like to be the head of the British section of OTO? And, you know, Crowley um, basically you know, protests his innocence and says, I don't know what you're talking about. Royce opens to the page in particular. We don't really know what the page is. There's been a lot of speculation about that, but Royce points to a particular passage and suddenly like the light bulb goes on, the rug is pulled out from under Crowley and he says, oh my God, you're right. This is, you know, the most important secret in magic. Um, I agree, I accept, I will be ahead of your OTO in England. <laughs> And uh, that is what happened. Um, and the long and short of it basically is that 
Crowley realize, comes to realize that rather than going through all the paraphernalia of magic, which really are just kind of externalized symbols, you know, you know, the wand is, is the will, the dagger is the intellect, and so on, that rather than sex being part of a ritual, that sex itself can be the ritual. And Royce had only a little bit of practice in using this himself, and Crowley decided he was going to basically practice the heck out of this secret. So, oh, and there's Theodore Royce. Hi, Theodore Royce. Um, <clears throat> we see his uh, thinking kind of um, on this incorporated into his ritual of the Gnostic Mass. And here I just, I've stuck in just for some amusement, a couple pages from a paper called uh, My Life in the Love Cult. Um, just because it's very, very rarely seen, but these are pictures of Crowley purportedly uh, holding court over scantily clad ladies who are flocking around him. Of course, this was nothing like what really happened. But what we can look at is this bar chart that I put together going through Crowley's diaries, charting his various sex magic workings. Um, I should point out that the there is no bar for 1919 because there is no diary surviving for 1919. So it's not like Crowley suddenly became, you know, ascetic or platonic at that point. It's just we don't know what he was up to. But um, looking at the surrounding years, we can imagine that bar would would be somewhere in that same ballpark. Um, but we we see that Crowley is you know engaging in quite a lot of. Um, sex magic rituals. He basically wrote them all in his diaries. I'm actually in the process of trying to um, abstract all this information in a in a data format that can be qualitatively and quantitatively analyzed. Um, there's a little bit of this in in Stephen Skinner's uh, Magical Diaries of Aleister Crowley, but I kind of want to do this like for the whole span of his lifetime because throughout his life he treated every act of sex as a magical ritual and he makes a note of it in his diaries so it's a great data source and um, as we see in this slide this is a practice that he kept up um, if you will excuse the pun for you know for, for most of his life you know and it doesn't really trail off until you know he's in his late 60s so uh, for all of us uh, late bloomers into sex magic there's there is hope um, So that covers Crowley as sex fiend. Um, ba -ba -ba do we have time to talk about uh, Wicca or do we need to uh, prep for the next presenter? Chris? Uh, we probably should. We could maybe take a couple of quick questions and then uh, um, uh, right. we'll, uh, we'll uh, um, uh, introduce Richard Davis. Anybody got a question? Quickly? Good. Let me stop. I, I got one. And fantastic presentation, yeah, I just, by the way. Thanks. Well, thank you. Go thank ahead. Uh, can you see me now? <laughs> yeah. Hi, awesome. uh, my name is Chris. I'm, I'm the master of Swirling Star Lodge. Oh, hi, Chris. How are you? I, I think I met you when you came to our AIT, I think in 2012, <laughs> way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I go, yeah, me and Swirling Star go way back, you know, it's... Uh... 
But um, really quick, since there's a, a short amount of time, uh, I saw a little squ I, I came in late. Um, I'm, I'm here to see Richard's uh, presentation, uh, the other Richard. Um, and um, and I saw that you had Crowley's ales um, there. Are those recipes extant? Because I, I used to brew beer and I, I was just wondering if. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, Crowley's beer, you know, you know, the, basically that was his grandfather's and, and his grand uncle's uh, company. And they were very well known in, in the UK. And later they were bought by Watney's, which I guess is a famous British uh, <laughs> brewer. And I, th I believe the, you know, the, these were made um, up and up through the 1960s. Um, I, I, I can't say, I don't know enough about brewing for a fact to say for a fact whether like what they were doing in the 1960s was the same as what was being done originally, if it was the same formula or not. Um, I've, I've, I've heard some interesting stories that one have, you know, that people have like found like old bottles of, uh, of beers and and and, and, and liquors and being able to like scrape out the remains and kind of chemically analyze and reconstruct the formula, but I'm not, you know, aware of um, whether this is that that is known for this particular beer. I wish I wish it was. Thank you. You're Do welcome. you know if still uh, ex, uh, is still um, brewing? I'm sorry if. If the the brewery that bought Crowley's um, ales Watkeys, I, I try to spell it, but I'm not oh, sure. I, I believe it's Watney. Um, oh. I you know I, unless I'm misremembering, but um, I I believe they still exist, but they're they're no longer, you know they they stopped making the Crowley and Company beer um, in the '60s, and then the label I think that you see there is is uh, from that that era, the the original Crowley. Uh, Crowley ale and, and Crowley beers were in glass bottles. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so next up, oh. next up, we're going to have uh, Richard Davis, and they have a really special presentation. I think that's really relevant to the uh, Aeon of Horus, double wanded one. And, uh, um, you know, in many ways, the book of the law has been a zeitgeist as a cannabis activist. I've really kind of seen Crowley's work as, uh, uh, you know, almost foreshadowing and predicting this new uh, age of entheogens that we're entering into. And I think, you know, Crowley himself talked a lot about the androgeneity of, of the age of Horus, you know. And, you know, you know, every man and woman is a star and everything in between that pole of man and woman is a star as well. And... Uh, um, we're going to be having our next guest discuss discuss that 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 situation that sits sits between man and women and priest and priestess, and I think it's an important uh, discussion to close on. And in this time and age, it's really something very important for all of us to think about. And I want to bring up. Can you uh, make Richard a host? And, yeah. Uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, bring up our next guest, Richard Davis. And uh, we look uh, forward to the. Uh, uh, um, go ahead and uh, we'll try to uh, get around and, and talk to you. But thank you so much. Uh, hopefully we can do this again next year, uh, Crowley Mass 2021, and uh, um, have some equally interesting, fantastic guests. Richard, thank you. Michael Staley, both Richards, thank you. Michael Staley, Lon Milo, 
Uh, um, it's really been wonderful having you. It was great presentations all day. Sorry about the technological uh, difficulties at the very beginning, but it is what it is. It's a first. It's a first. So um, we got to get getting a little bit better of a handle on it. But uh, take it away. It's your chance to talk to each other and uh, enjoy a bit of curly mass spirit. Be kind to one another. Really well done. Oh, thank you, man. 93 for Montreal. That was well done. Uh, thank you a lot, uh, Chris, for organizing that event. Hopefully, it'll be the first of many more to come. Uh, hopefully, one day, I'll be able to go down there to Soma also and be with you guys. Yeah. So for now, uh, have a good feast. Enjoy Crowley Mass. Thank you, man. Cheers. Cheers, brother. Well, since no one's talking, I guess I'll jump in really quick. Um, I did notice after I wrapped up that there were some questions in the chat box um, that I didn't get to uh, see and talk to my talk was over. I didn't want to like be responding during other people's, you know, during the last few talks. I, did, I just didn't want that. You know, I thought that might be rude. Um, so I figured I'd just wait till the end here. Um, I kind of need to hop off soon to have dinner, but I thought before I do, if anyone who had questions is still with us, um, this would be a great time to get them in. I have a question um, regarding the Alistair Crowley as a, you know, a human personality with, you know, a person of his time. I was, um, I posted a link to the Zoom in a Moorish Orthodox church, a Moorish Orthodox temple group. And, uh, you know, the, the issue, the backlash that I got was related to uh, Crowley's um, apparent uh, racism and uh, some of his uh, quotations and things from um, his Confessions book and um, Magic Without Tears and how to potentially reconcile some of these uh, aspects of Crowley's historic personality and, and his paradigm teachings and spirituality. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's a couple of responses to that. Um, I, I think that while you can go through and find quotes from, from Crowley that are problematic, and uh, I certainly don't want to try to whitewash or deny that. Um, one of the struggles I had in putting together this edited edition of Sort of Song is that there are you know similar sorts of um, language that that doesn't hold up as uh, as well today as perhaps it did in his time um but i think you know one of the but we, have, we also see passages within crowley's writing where he does say things like for instance in the book of the law where where you know we read every man and every woman is a star and he he in other writings i can't quote them off the top of my head here but he certainly makes a very egalitarian and inclusive statements as well um, and I, I think that in, in any part of life, but particularly with following, uh, you know, Philema, that we don't have to agree with everything that Crowley says, you know. Um, and, um, and we also see other examples of how, for, you know, writers and their works can be, I don't know, reclaimed 
um, through through reinvention. I one one place I I, I see that happening, for instance, is with the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who um, you know has has written some very racist things, and yet we see things programs like Lovecraft Country, which is kind of turning that on its head. Um, so I think it's with with writers and philosophers and visionaries, artists, and all all that. There's a way of separating the artist from their work and and finding value in uh, what they write. And again, we don't have to uh, buy the whole package. Fair enough. I, uh, I have a question for you, Richard. Uh, do you have any insight into Crowley's workings in Kentucky or at the uh, at the Brakes Interstate Park, that sort of area? Uh, no, he doesn't really say a whole lot in his confessions about that. And unfortunately, I think that was in the year 1919 where that diary is missing. So um, there's not a whole lot to kind of go on there, unfortunately. I've got a question for you, Richard, if, if I may sure. say. Um, I wanted to ask about more the um, the book that you mentioned in your talk on absence and whether Crowley at all uh, was was uh, interacting with the various bands that came across. I think it was like 1910, 1915 in, I think, Italy, France and Switzerland at some point where it was banned in various countries uh, much, I, I suppose, much like the um, uh, cocaine and heroin um, legislation came around, you know, around that turn of the century era, um, and whether or not um, there was any particular kind of occult usage or occult um, significance to absinthe in particular. Um, gosh, um, I, I I know that there's places where Crow talks about. Um, going to Paris having Pernod. Um, but with Absinthe, that particular piece, I believe, was a, a poem that he wrote um, and, 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 and also an essay like on the old Absinthe house and things like that. And those were things that were written, I believe, during his time in America while he was down in New Orleans. And um, presumably at that point, that's, that was still uh, readily available. Um, so I, I, I don't recall anything offhand about Crowley commenting on absent being banned or un, unavailable, unfortunately. But you know, there were, you know, again, there was this movement, as you mentioned, uh, you know, internationally to kind of ban certain drugs as, uh, you know, which, you know, again, I wasn't aware of the absent thing, but you know, there was the dangerous drug acts in the US and, and the UK that followed just a few years later. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> no, no worries. I have a question. Um, I'm in New York City and uh, I work around the block from uh, a place where Crowley lived on uh, 36th Street. And um, I went to go try to find the place and, and I think it had been torn down and just like a couple of months before I searched it out. Mm. And uh, I think a hotel is being built there. And um, I'm kind of curious if, if you know anything about any kind of diaries when he was in New York. I know he went upstate and did magic up in, in uh, uh, 
upstate New York, of course, and people know about that pretty well. But do you know anything about uh, his, or, or is there any way to access some of his diaries at that time, especially on 36th Street? Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, if, if you if you look or have access to the magical record of the Beast 666, which was edited by John Simons and Kenneth Grant, that pretty much covers his American period. And during that time, he lived at various, I mean, he moved around the country, but he lived at right. various in and around New York City. Um, you know, there was, there was a place in Washington Square Park uh, where they lived. He um, he was sofa surfing at uh, Leon Edgar Kennedy's apartment right. uh, at one point. So uh, there are and and the Amalantra workings were happening in, in New York City as well. So um, oh yeah, so there are certainly places um, that that happened. You'd have to go back into um, you know those diaries, kind of figure, you know, find out the clues where he was at that time. I'm kind of obsessed because uh, right down the street is Keene's Steakhouse where like famous people had eaten, everybody had their pipes held there. And I'm, I'm so sure that if he lived on that street for any moment of time that he got himself a pipe in that, in that restaurant. So I'm, I'm, I'm determined to find out somehow. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm determined. <laughs> do you know um, if his, uh, historically, um... I don't know if the building still exists or if it's been torn down or if it's just changed hands, but I understand there's a place called the Brevoort Hotel, which- uh, The what? Which one? Brevoort. Um, and that was a place that Crow loved to hang out. I mean, I guess they had a dining room there that he uh, frequented. Um, huh. That, that jump, jump, jumps out in my mind just because uh, in, the, the new edition of Panic in Detroit that I, I finished working on recently, um, Crowley meets the book dealer Albert Ryerson at the Brevoort uh, Hotel. Um, but that was, a, you know, at least at the time, a very famous upscale sort of boutique, you know, hotel. Um, I just don't know if that if it still stands or if it's been kind of, you know. Uh, I'll look into it for sure. Thank you so much for your talk today. Really enjoyed it. Oh. Thank you for attending. I know it's been a long day, so uh, thanks for sticking it out. And again, I don't need to hold hog all the time here. I mean, we've got other you know people online as well, so feel free to ask them questions as well too. Early race. All uh, good. Uh, I'd be interested to know more about. Uh, the Akkad, uh, you know, we mentioned uh, uh, Panic in Detroit, and I forgot to mention that when I was talking about your books, another wonderful book of yours. And I'd be interested in um, uh, um, knowing more about Akkad dosing people with peyote in that that you mentioned is in um, a unpublished uh, uh, continuation of his Master of the Temple, I think, uh, essay that's, that's, that's not been published. You, you talked about it a bit in there. Um, I, I'm not recalling that particular passage off the top of my head, but, uh, if, if it's, uh, in the top drawer of your mind, feel free to, uh, oh, elaborate. Yeah. Oh, no, it was just, you had a, a piece in there. Aha, put you on the spot. <laughs> what do you think? Aha, put you on the spot. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you had a, a part in there where Akkad was, uh, in Detroit and giving people peyote that were potential candidates for the OTO. 
And I think you said he recorded some of the experiences in an unpublished, I think the, it was his Master of the Temple essay. I could have the title wrong of the, uh, of the essay, but it was some unpublished, uh, it was like part one, part two, part three. And it's an unpublished one that's in the uh, OTO archives, I guess. Well, I do know that there that um, in the I and again I can't speak to that particular detail. I just don't recall it off the top of my head. But I can just kind of add, give some surrounding detail in that um, in the Blue Equinox, the the volume three, number one um, continuation of that series that was published in Detroit, there was um, the the first installment of a series called A Master of the Temple, which was the magical biography basically of Charles Stansfeld Jones, kind of mirroring, you know, the uh, the Temple of Solomon the King that was in the first volume of the Equinox that gave Crowley's magical um, biography. And there there does survive, you know, all the unpublished portions. Uh, actually, you know, volume, I'm, I'm sorry, number two of that series of the Equinox was actually printed at one point but never bound and those sheets were lost, but you know, like the contents, you know, are known and, and pretty much survive. And as, as you mentioned that, that the continuations or at least a couple other parts of that series um, do exist in manuscript form as well. So yes, it exists. I just don't recall the particular details that you're referring to. Okay, thanks a lot. Is there any way that those will ever get published? Like you think that it would be in the, uh... The, the collection of drug accounts that you were talking about, you were thinking of doing? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I know there is a plan to um, reissue that, that Equinox volume three, number two, that never saw the light of day. Um, it's just the status of those things, I don't know. I mean, OTO has been trying to start up its own publishing company and those and the logistics behind that are, you know, uh, I'm not privy to, so I'm not sure where things currently stand. Okay, awesome. And thanks for your presentation. Uh, yeah, certainly a lot of interesting projects. Uh, I have just one uh, quick question for Richard. Uh, I know that you've seen, or I've seen from your post, you've seen uh, the show Hellier. So I'm wondering your personal opinion on if there's any legitimate connection between uh, between Crowley and what is going on with that phenomenon. Um, are you asking me, Richard, or you, Richard. Richard Davis? Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I have not seen Hellier, so I, I can't comment on that, I'm afraid. Sorry. I've heard of it, but I've, I've not seen it. Hello, I have a question for Richard. Oh, hello, Richard. Hello. Um, yeah. Uh, so after reading, um, after reading, oh, Mike. Yeah, that's me. Oh, drummer, that's Mike. Me. Hi. <laughs> um, I, I'm a little late in the conversation. I caught the beginning of it, but I had to go somewhere and I'm back. But um, now, after reading "Night Side of Eden" by Kenneth Grant, um, the drawings representing all these different kind of clephotic uh monsters as it were that are in these like clephotic husks or tunnels as i understand them to be now at first when i started reading that i thought those were drawings by grant but 
you know, after, you know, reading, because, you know, as labyrinthian as Grant's writing can be, sometimes I was like, oh, those were originally drawn by Crowley, you know, and then I looked up the lever where he, you know, explored this clephotic world, you know, although it's not as detailed as Grant goes into it, because he obviously took it and just ran with it, you know, and involved all his Lovecraftian, and then later, obviously, his UFO and alien indoctrination to it to great extent and um but the only thing that i haven't come across personally um is a kind of like abyss crossing like aha moment where he kind of connects these worlds and decides to take the clephotic world into his own and if that was something that was done under crowley's tutelage because you know i've read things about you know crowley's relationship with akkad you know, Akkad, it kind of goes off the rails and he has this thing with some prostitute and then he comes back and Crowley said, you just went through the abyss, my friend. And then, you know, and then Akkad, of course, goes on, uh, like I'm not too familiar with his chronology of his writings, you know, like when exactly he wrote Anatomy of the Body of God and all that stuff like that. But the only thing I would like to know and just haven't come across in my studies yet is if Grant had that kind of moment where he felt comfortable enough to take this clephotic world into his own and whether or not that was while he was under Crowley's tutelage as his secretary. And I was wondering if you did. I know that's a loaded question or. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's too bad uh, Michael's not still with us because he'd probably be in a better position to answer that having known Ken, Ken for as long as he has. Uh, but um... and, oh, I'm sorry to, for being ignorant. Michael who? Oh, Michael Staley. Michael Seeley. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah the, 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 the guy behind uh, Starfire, you know, the, the publishing company that puts out kind of grants. Oh, okay. Okay. That's where that name sounds familiar. Now I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And various other accolades. I mean, I guess uh, yeah, you can find yeah. it online, but. Um, totally. Um, but I mean, my, my, my sense of, the secretarial relationship between, between Crowley and Grant is that um, that was a relatively short-lived thing. And I, and mm -hmm. I sense that, that a lot of these ideas um, Grant developed over the years through his own independent study. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I believe that's probably the case with the Nightside Legion as well, but I, I can't say that for sure. Yeah, and you know, it's like, it's one of those things where it, it seems like Crowley promotes your own interpretation of things, you know, to be your own, you know, to have your own, like as much time as you have, of course, to devote to that kind of stuff, you know, to come to your own conclusions about things, but, you know, only so many people have as much time or or devote as much as like guys like Grant did, obviously, and it's just, it always like kind of, if, if someone actually knew Crowley, like how much, you know, approval the guy would have, you know, because like, you know, some of the descriptions, especially some of the like shattering intonations he talks about when, you know, invoking or evoking these clephotic, you know, demons, quote unquote, for lack of a better term for him, is so, so in depth. And it's just, it's just really impressive. And I, I was just wondering if, if you knew about any you know, connection there if he had his, his blessing, so to say. <laughs>
I mean, one, one thing I, 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 just, I can just tag on to that is if you have not encountered uh, Linda Felorio and her Nightside, Nightside Tarot, because she, she actually went, she and her partner, Fred Fowler, went through a uh, prolonged magical working in which they, they were exploring these paths, you know, based on the night side of Eden. And she painted a series of major arcana cards for the 22 paths. And uh, the, 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 those cards and, and the accompanying booklet that kind of explains what, you know, what, what they did is, is fascinating, if that's the thing that, that interests you. Wow, absolutely. And that's Linda who? Valorio, F-A-L-O-R-I-O. O-R-A-O? O-R-I-O. O-R-I-O, okay. Well, thank you so much. That is uh, definitely another step down the rabbit hole or clophotic <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> but thanks a lot, man. You're welcome. Hello, Richard. Can you talk about crawling and his relation to Fernando Pessoa in the visit to Hellmouth in Portugal? Um, Thank you. Uh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you're familiar with that story, but um, when uh, Crowley was at, uh, at you know, Hellsmouth, uh, or when he came to, well, when he came to Portugal, he was um, in the middle of a very intense relationship with um, his, his current Scarlet Woman, Hani Yeager, and Crowley got an, an idea into his head to um, stage his own suicide, kind of as a publicity stunt, and also kind of as a way of um, and a wooing or, uh, or making up to Hani for, for uh, problems in the relationship. And so he with Fernando Pessoa's help, um, they staged the stunt where he left a suicide note at uh, Boca do Inferno, um, you know, saying that, you know, the mouth of hell shall not be as hot as yours, you know, referring to, you know, addressing this to Hani. And um, the, Crowley's initial idea was that he would show up later at a, you know, German gallery opening for his art and then people would be wondering, is this, you know, the, the, the mystic or is it, does he have a double somewhere? And, um, so it was all uh, essentially a, a, a publicity stunt on Crowley's part. The, the interesting um, coda to this story, however, is that Hani Yeager winds up leaving, a, leaving Crowley and she, she leaves a suicide note for him and previous biographers basically took this at face value. Um, and this is kind of the source of these um, rumors about Crowley saying, oh, he drove all of his Scarlet women to suicide. And um, hey, there are none who committed suicide because um, the only one who even left this note like Hani Yeager did actually was, was just pulling a Boca do Inferno on Crowley. And she left this note and then hightailed it back to home in California. And she you now turns up in public records, you know, back in the States. So uh, um, Crowley got fooled by his own joke in the end. I've got another question for you, Richard, if I may. Um, as, it's, uh, as it's Crowley Mass, and uh, first of all, thank you very much for your talk. I um, came in around about 
well, half an hour after it started. But um, as we're celebrating Crowley Mass, um, the birthday of Alistair Crowley, 12th of October, um, I had to say this, and you know probably what I'm going to, what I'm going to ask, but um, I think 10 days before, uh, and I think 18 years before, but uh, 10 years on this month, uh, Arthur Edward Waite was born, who was obviously Alistair Crowley's uh, arch nemesis um, from our previous uh, conversation on this on this point. But um, the talk that you gave, you m mentioned that there was only specifically two areas in Crowley's life where he was engaged with um, uh, substances. Um, I think was was it well, heroin specifically. Heroin, sorry, heroin. But um, I think there was a. Um, uh, I don't know where I saw it from now, but I think it was really early on in the Golden Dawn when Alistair Crowley was initiated as a member, I think in 1898 or thereabouts. Um, and um, the the point I wanted to ask was, and I think I mentioned it in the actual chat, I don't know if you saw it, but it was about the Chancellery Road rule, I believe it was uh, affectionately referred to as. Yeah, I did see that. I, I wasn't. I'm not familiar with the Chancery Road rule. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll, um, I'll repeat for the benefit of, of the audience and, and anyone else who wasn't familiar with this, but uh, I heard that he and Alan Bennett, who struck up a relationship yes. solely on the basis of um, Alan Bennett requiring a, um, a place of residence in London, I think that Alistair Crowley was living somewhere near or around um, the Chancery Road where um, I think it was near to, um, where is it, Blythe Street, which is where the Golden Dawn was uh, initially had its place of residence under Mathers. Um, where, 36 whereby... Blythe Street, as I recall. Sorry? 36 Blythe Street, as I recall. 36 Blythe Street, yes. Yeah, currently uh, a takeaway place. That's right, <laughs> <Or> yes. <laughs> that's right, what, what it is now. Um, but uh, I think the Chancery Road rule was that uh, if you ingest certain substances in order to reach a certain state and you find that it's not working efficient, efficiently or effectively as you would wish it to be, then you should increase the dosage until it does. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just wondered whether this was something that's an urban legend in the sense that, um, you know, you, you do find many um, tracks like I think it was... Um, uh, what was his name? He died, I think, only last year. Um, Chick Publications or Chick? Oh, yeah. You must have come across this. Uh, and as for my second question, it's it's the first of all, how you opened up your talk about what was it that made you choose Alistair Crowley as a person to focus your um, your report on uh, all those years ago? Oh, back back up. high school. Well, um, I'll, I'll start with the first question. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with this Chancery Road rule, so it may be an urban legend. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that um, Alan Bennett was living kind of in a, in a tenement and Crowley offered to share his flat with Bennett um, with the, the idea that, you know, Bennett was, you know, one of the more respected, uh, if not the most respected practical, practical magician in the Golden Dawn, and that gave Crowley an opportunity to you know, learn from him directly. Um, so it kind of serves both their ends. And, and and there are in fact diary entries where Crowley records doing some drug experiments. I think there's one where he actually talks about breaking a tooth, although I, I don't recall all the details around it. 
So that I'm familiar with. Um, I'm just, I just haven't heard of this chancery road rule where you have to take more and more. Um, my, my, my sense of, of Crowley's early drug experiments, um, just from what I've read in his confessions and those diaries is that um, at that point, he wasn't terribly impressed with what he was getting. Um, yeah, I think his, his more impressive results came once he found some of the psychedelics. Um, and that's where, uh, that's again, the Anhelonium Luini or the peyote, um, where he really kind of found the, the mind altering sort of substances. So I, I, I you know, if, if there is a, a chance we were a rule, it's, it's new to me. Um, as far as why did I pick Crowley? Um, I, I think at that point I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. I had uh, discovered Crowley two years before when I was 14 and that was all about, all about AC. So when I, had, I was told to pick a British author, of course I picked Crowley because that's, that's where my head was at at that time. And uh, what was the item that, that first, where did your interest in him when you were 14? What was it? Was it uh, one of his books or was it an item that you came across? Or? Yeah, well, it was essentially, um, I, I had found the local metaphysical bookstore um, and went there to one week to buy a uh, book of Nostradamus's prophecies. Um, I went back, you know, a couple of weeks later and I bought Israel Regardies the Golden Dawn. So you just, you know, imagine this, you know, yeah accelerating curve <laughs> and the next time i was there you know the the owner said well you know if you enjoyed the golden dawn you you really want to read magic theory and practice mm. yeah the rest as they say it's history um, <laughs> i had actually uh yeah i was i was uh, you know intellectually speaking kind of kind of a terror in high school because you know the year before i had I, I was in a comparative religion class and we were supposed to do book reports. And so for my first book report, I did a book review of the Kama Sutra. And the teacher said, okay, I'll accept that as a religious text, but please, you know, change your topic to something else, you know, for future reports. So my next report was a book report on the magical record of the B666, which is basically Crowley sex diaries. <laughs> And you know, the teacher was like, okay, <laughs> broaden your topic a little bit. So I don't know, they, 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 I guess I was lucky in that my teachers uh, nevertheless, you know, tolerated and nurtured my unusual interests at that age. One um, final question, just to make it three questions that I've asked you is, um, although we've spoken about it before and the nature of um, Crowley's relationship with weight, um, do you know whether there was any early interaction? You mentioned before the um, uh, the cloud upon the um, what was it now? Eckhart Tolle. That's right. Um, that was initially one of the texts that first galvanized um, Crowley's interest. But I wondered if the two before they um, unamicably split and became very much uh, antagonists towards each other whether there was any relationship in relation to drinking, which is something that I only have come across in my studies of weight, which seemed to be very much a feature in, in his kind of, you know, mystical, magical life. Um, weight was a, I, 
drinker? Oh, well, wait, was um, I mean, one of the things I've uncovered um, largely thanks to R.A. Gilbert and also a few other figures that I've come across um, on Wade is that he, he did, in fact, form a secret society in many of the taverns around London where <laughs> they would read out quotes from Levy. They would read out uh, certain tarot card um, instructions, which they then had as part of their order called the uh, sodality of the shades, sorry, the sodality of the shades or sodality of the shadows, uh, which has recently been made into an LP, I understand, by um, uh, a uh, music musical group uh, that I've chosen on that name. But uh, focusing on um, A. Waite and Crowley, like, did they have any interaction that was pleasant or was it purely a um, antithetical from the, from the get-go? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware of them having any direct interaction at all um wow but now i'm like imagining you know like i want to, I want to be a fly on the wall with the two of them just like knocking back <laughs> yes that's right you're so pompous and wordy me <laughs> you're pompous and wordy. um but certainly crowley um talks about how it's weight's book of black magic and pacts that talks mm -hmm. about the of an invisible college and that kind of what gets him interested in trying to find this so-called invisible college. And it's when he meets Julian Baker, you know, uh, while climbing in the Alps that, uh, you know, he feels that the Golden Dawn was this, you know, invisible college that he was seeking. Um, so he, he does credit weight for that, but, you know, otherwise, I mean, he is, he's just, you know, relentlessly critical of weight, but I've, I've never seen any indication that they ever met, you know, or crossed paths um, in any of the Golden Dawn temples or whatnot, so. Okay, thank you very much, Richard, very and uh, I think I might have to call it here because it is nearly two o'clock in the well. Yeah, yeah, I kind of need to get some dinner in my belly, too, and I feel like I'm kind of hogging the conversation here, so, uh, um, I'm certainly happy to open the door to other people who want to chat. <laughs> oh, thanks, Richard. I wanted to well, thank, thank you, you, Richard, for tuning in. Have a good night. And um, I think with that, I'll probably also um, say thank you to Wilma Institute and to uh, Chris for inviting me to be part of Crowley Mass and for all of you for tuning in and sticking it out. And, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it all. So. Um, Thank you and 93 everyone. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Thank you everybody. Wonderful presentations by all. Happy Crowley Mass. Uh, hope to see you all again for 2021. We'll, we'll probably do it again. And uh, thanks for joining in and we'll be uh, posting uh, a, a recorded version of this sometime in the next couple of days or something like that. You can find it on my Facebook wall or go to Pot TV and it should be up there and uh, you can check it all out again at your own leisure. Thank you so much and uh, sorry about the glitches at the beginning, but it is what it is and boom, boom, shave everybody. Do as thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Okay, how do we shut this off? Okay, and... 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk